pleasure and a blessing for me to be here, and I am so grateful for the time I've had here since Friday, uh, just getting to know you, and we have had uh, just a, a great uh, time here as we've studied these different topics, and I appreciate your enthusiasm, I appreciate your uh, love for scriptures and for truth. I want to take a moment before we get started and just tell you a little bit, as Pastor Kyle mentioned, uh, where I serve now. So last November, uh, I had been serving for a year at Veritas Baptist College, Director of Student Services, and last November at our board meeting, they said, we would like for you to become the president of the school. And so as of November 1st, I became the president of an online Bible college. Uh, and so I'm still sort of in the honeymoon. It's all great right now, you know, no problems. Uh, and so here's a little bit about it. So we, most people honestly have not even heard of it, which is amazing to me. Uh, and part of that is because we really never did a lot of advertising. But the school this year, we start our 40th year of ministry. And so for 40 years, we've been training people to be uh, Christian leaders, ministry leaders, school teachers, missionaries. And the unique part is we, we don't have a campus. Uh, and so sometimes people say, how can, you, uh, how can you have education without a campus? And so I did some research uh, to try to find the history of distance education as far as Christians are concerned. Where did, where did distance education come from? And as I was looking into it, here's what I found. Uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. Ephesians, you know what those were? Those were examples where the Apostle Paul could not physically be with the person he wanted to teach or the church he wanted to teach, so he taught them via distance education. And we just do it a little more fancier now. We, we have you know, cameras and videos and things like that and, and software, but it's the same concept that we've had in the local church since the beginning of Christianity, where we have taught people in person and we've taught people uh, via distance. And so we take the distance route, and here's why. Uh, some churches... Uh, they, they have people that are plugged in, they're actively serving the Lord, they're already being trained for ministry by their pastor. And so what happens for some of those people, they leave to go to Bible college. And so two things happen when they do that. Number one, he leaves a hole in the church where they're serving. And number two, those people who were so actively involved in ministry go, and now they're getting a theological training, but many times they don't have the same outreach as, as far as output of being able to be involved in the ministry. When I went to Bible college years ago, I, I had started preaching when I was 16 years old. And I preached uh, all over the state of Georgia. I had my little calendar. My dad was a pastor. He said, I might get your calendar out. And so when people ask you to preach, you've got to make sure we know because, you know, we, sometimes we'll go with you. And so, so I was doing that at 16 years old. And so when I went to Bible college, I'd been preaching now for a couple of years. Uh, I had uh, preached regularly uh, to children and buses and things like that. But when I went to Bible college, my opportunity for ministry decreased my level of understanding increased, but my, my opportunity to serve decreased. And so we come alongside local churches where people are already serving and say, look, if you're already being trained by your pastor and you're already vitally plugged into your service of, of ministry there at your church, you don't have to move. You can actually stay and can you do what you're doing, and we'll come alongside and provide the theological education. So I love what I get a chance to do. Let me talk about the free stuff, because that's what people are more interested in, right? So we are, we are called Veritas Baptist College. We used to be called Virginia Baptist College, so our website is vbc.edu. And so we changed our name because people would think we have to live in Virginia to, to go to your school. And so we changed it, but we didn't want to change our URL. We wanted to still be vbc.edu because we've been using it for, you know, 30-plus years. And so then we had to find a V word. 
That's really what happened. So are we going to be Victory Baptist Church or Baptist College? Are we going to be Vexation Baptist College? Or, you know, we're looking, we're looking for a word, Vision Baptist College. And uh, we had the option for us. Another school took that. You know, we were first. Uh, we actually went for a Latin word, Veritas. And here's why. We believe that truth matters. We believe in a world that is uh, so fallen away from God's ideal. Truth has fallen in the street. And we need to buy the truth and sell it not. So truth matters. And so as a, as a ministry of that, this is one of the parts I love best about my job. When I served at other colleges, I would come into the church, I would set up my table, and I would say, give us your best. <laughs> We're here to take your very best and take them to campus. Now I get to come and say, you know, I'm not really here to take, I'm here to give. And so we believe that God has given ministries to help equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And one of those ministries that we have is Truth Matters Institutes, TMI. Some people think it stands for too much information. You might think that when you take some of the classes. But Truth Matters Institutes, tmi.vbc.edu. You can scan the table out there. There's a QR code that will take you right to the website. And those are just free classes. Right now we have 50 courses that are up for free. We're continually adding to them. This fall at Veritas, I'll teach a course on apologetics, and I'll take those lectures, and I'll put it over on TMI so the entire semester class will be for free. And uh, in the future, we're going to be uh, translating those classes into Spanish so missionaries can use it. I've been talking this summer. There's a, there's a Christian college in the Philippines uh, that have about 500 students, and they're sending people out into that 1040 window that you often hear missionaries talk about. But as places where Americans have a hard time getting in. But this school, they, they really didn't have any theological... The professors had a great heart for Jesus and a love for Jesus and a passion for Jesus, but they really didn't have a lot of theological training themselves. They just had a great zeal. So they contacted us and they asked, could you help us take your materials in Truth Matters Institutes and scope out uh, a curriculum for us? And so right now, uh, indirectly, our school is helping to train 500 students that are going out into the mission field, and we're, we're super excited about that. And so just a, just a blessing to serve the Lord. So if you're interested in just taking a certificate uh, for credit, great. You want to take a degree for credit, great. You want, to, you want to finish the degree you started, come talk to me. If you just want to take a class for free, great. Uh, glad to be a blessing and a help to you. Uh, that's our heart is to be a help and a blessing. All right, that in mind, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. If you're here visiting this morning, uh, then you are like me, and we don't know each other, and I don't know that you're visiting, and you don't know that I'm visiting, but I, this is my first time here. And so if it's your first time here, I would say, if you're in the area, I hope you'll come back and uh, be a part of the services when Pastor Kyle is preaching. I know he'll be a blessing to you as well uh, if you're from the area. If you're not from the area and you just happen to come in, then I'm glad that you're here on this day as well. Here's what we've talked about. We have talked about since Friday night that truth is absolute, that it's not relative. There's not my truth versus your truth. There's just truth, and truth doesn't change. And truth isn't affected by our feelings. Truth isn't affected by our passion. Truth isn't determined by who shouts the loudest. Sometimes we get that idea when we watch debates or politics, like, oh, he's screaming louder. He must be more passionate. He must be more truthful. That's not how truth is determined. Uh, truth is absolute. And yet... When we look at truth, there's these facts that are non-negotiable, and yet people can look at the same facts and come to different conclusions. How is that possible? Like, for example, this morning we're going to talk about the resurrection. So some people look at the empty tomb, and they'll say, Jesus came out. And some people look at the same empty tomb and say, the disciples stole the body. How do people come to such varying interpretations of the facts? Partly because of the worldview we have. The worldview is the filter by which we view the world. So, for example, when I take my glasses off, my view of you just changed. In fact, I can't even tell who you are anymore. 
when I had these on, I could tell men from women and women from children. And I could tell. I can't tell now. It's no offense to you. It's, it's, the fault is mine. I, can't, I just can't see. You know what, though? For the longest time, I thought this was normal vision. I didn't have a standard to compare it to. And so in Georgia, we do things probably similar to what you do here. Uh, I started driving when I was 12. My dad would say, Mike, do you want to drive us home? And I never said, oh, Dad, that's against the law. I don't want to do that. that would... No, I said, as a believer in Christ, I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. Yes, sir, I'll drive. <laughs> and so at 12 years old, I'd start driving the pickup trucks home. And, and my dad would often say this, and I never really understood why. He would say, do you see that stop sign up there? Yes, sir. You're going to stop? Yes, sir. And then all of a sudden, I could see it really clearly, and I was really, really close. And we slammed the brakes. My dad would go up to the windshield. And every time he would just say, why didn't you stop? And I just, I I don't know, Dad. I don't know. I'm just, remember, I'm only 12, you know. Uh, And so for the longest time. Well, when I actually got my actual physical license, I I had to take a a test. I had to actually show that I could see. And uh, so I'm in the eye exam. The guy says, "Uh, tell me the letters there uh, on the wall. What do you see? And I looked at him. I said, what What letters? And what, what sign are you even talking I, I couldn't even see it. Like, I know there's something back on that back screen, and if I look up here, I can make it out. But I, I, it's just blurred. That's all it is, blurred. So I can remember when I got my first pair of glasses at 16. Literally, I can remember walking out, and for the first time in my life, I had depth perception. I just remember it like it was yesterday. I remember stepping off the curb onto the, 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 the parking lot, and I remembered I was sort of like hesitant, almost unbalanced. Like, wow, this is cool. And then I remember for the first time, as I, I, my dad said, you're going to drive us home? I said, yeah, you know, I think, I think actually this time, I think I'd just like to sit in a passenger seat and just watch. I'm seeing things literally for the first time. What changed? Everything that I was looking at had been there all along. That hadn't changed. My worldview changed. And I was seeing things differently. We've looked at the fact that faith isn't a blind leap into the dark. Faith in the Bible is not wishful thinking. I just really, really hope this is true. Faith is all about looking at the evidence and going where the evidence points. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. And so we've talked about that, and, and then we provided evidences. That's what we've been doing for the last several sessions. We provided evidence that God exists. And we said specifically that you don't need a Bible to prove that God exists. That's not sacrilegious. That's not blasphemous. That's actually... Uh, understanding uh, the truth of Scripture. For example, Adam, did he believe God existed, yes or no? Did Adam learn that in the Bible? Adam didn't have a Bible, did he? He didn't need a Bible to know that God existed. Did Abraham believe that God existed? Yes, but not because he read it in the Bible, right? In fact, out of all of the characters, hundreds and hundreds of characters in the Bible, only one that's named had the potential, and we're not even sure that he did, but he at least had the potential to view the entire Old Testament and New Testament scriptures, and that's John. He was the only one. Everybody else would have died before the last books were written. So we don't need a Bible to prove that God exists. Now, the Bible defends it, and the Bible declares it, and the Bible definitely proves it, but there's other sources, and that's the point we're making. Then, yesterday, we also talked about the fact that there are some who say that Jesus is a myth, that he didn't even really exist. He's up in the categories of the Easter Bunny or or as Pastor Kyle said yesterday, he's just another hero like all of the Marvel superheroes today in that genre. And, and uh, you know, maybe we'll get a T-shirt that says, uh, this is my favorite hero or something like that. So we looked at the evidence. Not, I really hope Jesus is real, but we looked at the evidence that says that he is real. And then this morning we said that not only is Jesus historically a man, but biblically he is God. 
And we talked about three evidences that show that Jesus is God in the flesh, so that what he says validates what he did, and what he did validates what he said. And now we come to one final evidence of the deity of Jesus, the greatest miracle in the New Testament. Do you know in the Old Testament, when God wanted to show how powerful he was, the prophets would say it this way, I am the Lord thy God which brought thee out of Egypt. That was the measurement. Uh, All the other gods did this, but I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. That was the standard of measurement. The standard of measurement for who God is and his power is not, in the New Testament, how he brought him out of Israel. Here's the standard of measurement, the empty tomb. Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power. And so uh, let's talk about this resurrection. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. And I'll ask you to keep your Bible open there for a little while. I'm not going to read the entire chapter, though I will encourage you to read the entire chapter later. Chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. We believe the gospel, right? He said, I'm going to give you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also you've received, and wherein you stand. And it's by this gospel you're saved, if you keep in memory what I've preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. Now here it comes. Here comes the gospel. I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried. And that's not the end of the story. The word gospel means good news. And if my message this morning was, there was a man who lived 2,000 years ago and he died and was buried, that's not good news. That's sort of sad. Or that's reality for every single one of us, that we all will be born and we will all live and we will all die. It's appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. That's just the reality of life. And if my message this morning was simply, there was this historical Jesus who lived a really, really good life and did a lot of good things. I want you to know he died and they buried him. There's no redeeming quality in that. Here's where the gospel finishes. That he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. When we talk about the gospel, it is the death, the burial, and the resurrection. The gospel is incomplete when we just simply say, Jesus died for you. That's a true statement, but it is incomplete. Not only did he die, he was buried and he rose again. And this miracle is the defining cornerstone for Christianity. It is what separates Christianity from every religion in the world. If you go to the founding graves, the founders' graves of world religions today, what you'll find is a revered a tomb. You'll find a place where bones are rotting and when flesh has been corrupted. And you'll find people who will just say, right here lived a great man. But if you go to Jerusalem, you'll say, right here, a great man borrowed this for three days. It's different, isn't it? No other religion has that. This is the cornerstone of what we believe. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, first of all, Paul sort of lays down the the prominence of the resurrection, how important it is. He said this is part of the gospel. Way earlier, Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation. So if we don't understand the gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection, we cannot understand salvation. So Paul says this is prominent. This is, this is very, very important. But also in this chapter, Paul gives the proofs of the resurrection. 
Look at it in verse 5. After the resurrection, he was seen of Cephas. That's one. He was seen of Cephas. That's the Aramaic name for Simon Peter. Uh, And so he was seen of Cephas. Then, second proof, he was seen of the twelve in the upper room. Third proof, he was seen of 500 people, 500 brethren at one time. And, by the way, the greater part of them are still alive. Some have died, some have fallen asleep. But but there's actually a good number of that 500 that are still living. You can go and ask them, is what Paul was saying. We have witnesses, there's proofs of this resurrection. Peter saw him, the twelve saw him, these 500. Fourth proof. Then he was seen of James. Uh, And then uh, we could say again, verse number uh, number five in verse seven, he was also seen of all the apostles again. Verse eight. Then he was seen of Paul as one born out of due time. And Paul just sort of lists these proofs of the resurrection. People had seen him. But then... If you flip over through the chapter, you'll find that in verse number 11, there was a protest against the resurrection. Paul said, therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, this is what the gospel is, this is what I preach, then then how in the world are there some people right there in Corinth who say that there's no resurrection of the dead? This denial, there was this protest, there was this, I don't believe the resurrection. And so Paul begins to give the consequences. Look at verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is still dead. He's not risen. Consequence number one, if you prayed to Jesus this morning, you prayed to a dead person. He didn't hear you. Because he's just a dead body corrupting in the grave. Uh, And then there's a second consequence. If Christ has not risen then my preaching is vain. I'm wasting my time giving my life to preaching the scriptures if there is no resurrection. Oh, by the way, there's a third consequence. If Jesus isn't risen, then he's still dead, and my preaching is vain, but your faith is also useless. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to contend for the faith, but why contend for a faith that is useless? Better just let it die a slow or even a quick death and just get on with what's important if there's no resurrection. Verse 15, there's a fourth consequence. I'm a false witness. I'm a liar. If there's no resurrection, and everything I've taught since I began preaching in 1989, everything I have preached and taught, I'm a liar. And Paul was saying the same thing. If there's no resurrection. Verse 17, if Christ isn't raised, if there's no resurrection, not only is my faith vain, which he's already mentioned, he gives a fifth consequence, I'm still living in my sins. If you were to ask me, tell me about your sins, I, could, I would say, uh, my sins are gone. They're underneath the blood of Jesus, but only because of the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, I'm still living in my sins, and I'm like the rest of the world that's hopeless with no solution to the greatest problem humanity faces, how to be right with God. I have no answer for that if there's no resurrection. Uh, and then verse 6, uh, if there's no resurrection, and everyone who trusted in Christ as their Savior, they've perished. They're not in heaven. They're actually spending an eternity in a Christless hell. Uh, verse 19, if there's no resurrection in this life only, that's the only time we're going to have hope because we're of all men most miserable. You get the idea for Paul's perspective, the resurrection is a big deal? I love verse 20. But now, but now, I've given you all this bad news, but now, I'd like to say authoritatively, Christ is risen from the dead. And he's become the first fruits of them that slept. And he begins to go into the theology of how he's the greater Adam. And then I want you to notice at the end of this chapter how he just sort of ends it. Verse 55. 
Hey, death, where's your sting? Hey, grave, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, in light of the fact that the resurrection is true, in light of that, brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because we know, and you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This idea of the resurrection is an important concept. Gary Habermas is an apologist, and and Mike Lacona, and these men have identified at least 42 different historical witnesses of Jesus Christ outside of the Bible when the first 150 years of his crucifixion. Uh, He's found in Roman uh, uh, testimonies and Jewish testimonies and Gentile testimonies. Uh, So the fact that Jesus is witnessed to as having a belief that people believed he lived, he died, he buried, and that he rose again, this is established by credible witnesses, even by hostile witnesses. So what is the evidence that you and I have this morning for the fact that there is an empty tomb? This past summer... Uh, June, I think. I've sort of lost track of the summer. It's been a busy summer. I just moved Saturday, uh, so I'm living out of boxes right now. I just changed states. I moved from Michigan to Connecticut and then flew to North Carolina and then flew here. And so uh, it's been a busy summer, but I think it was June. My wife and I took a group over to Israel, a great trip. We had 40 people, 35 or 36 of them were coming for the very first time. And it was great to watch people who had never seen some of these places watch the Bible come alive as they saw it with their own eyes. We went to two different places. One is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and many believe that uh, this is the actual uh, tomb that Jesus was buried in. And and then there's the garden tomb, and some believe that this was a tomb Jesus was buried in. Honestly, I don't know. Here's what I I do know. They're both empty. That's what I know. If it was the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, I got good news. I checked. I looked inside. There was nobody there. If it's the garden tomb, I looked in there on multiple occasions. I kept looking, and here's what I I discovered. There was no body there. There's an empty tomb, an empty tomb that shouts to the world, he is risen. And yet, in light of this empty tomb, there has been historical objections to the resurrection. So if you were able to get some notes as you came in this morning, you'll see that there's some historical objections to the fact that people don't, they want to interpret the fact that this empty tomb means something different than a resurrection. So what theories does the world put forth? Well, first of all, there's this theory that Jesus didn't really die. He was beaten unconscious, but he didn't really die. And then he was laid into that uh, borrowed tomb uh, and wrapped up. And then while laying in that damp, cold tomb, it revived him. And so uh, he, he, he basically left the tomb. Uh, he just never really died. Um, let's think about that for just a moment. The Romans were professional executioners. It was their job to know when a thief hanging on a cross was dead. Their life depended on it. And a Roman soldier pierced Jesus through with a spear, and the blood and water came out, and he said, this, this man was a son of God. But he also recognized that Jesus was dead. This idea of the swoon theory, that he just sort of fainted and then he was revived, let's think about what Jesus would have to do. He's lost vast amounts of blood, in fact, in Roman crucifixion, many of the, 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 those that are being executed never even make it to the cross. Okay, and that, I won't be gruesome this morning, but you, could, you can study it on your own, and you'll find that the amount of blood that is lost 
during the torture and the mockery that leads to the cross, many of them, uh, they, they die before they ever get there. Jesus is so weak from the beating, he can't even carry his own cross. Remember that? So they compel one from the crowd. Simon, Cyrene, you, you, come here. Carry this for him because we don't want him to pass out. We want to, we want to go through with all of this. And so you carry it for him. He, he's too weak to even carry the cross. And then uh, crowns of thorns are planted and blood continues to flow. And then uh, his back is whipped open and a scarlet robe is put on and ripped off and the, and the blood is flowing. And then nails are through his wrist and through his feet and the, the blood is flowing. And, and he can barely breathe as he pushes himself up. And, and then he, as he drops back down, the splinters from that rugged cross are ripping it open again and again and again. And for six hours, he sits there and utters seven sayings from the cross with you and I on his mind. And then he dies. But if he hadn't died, he just passed out, then, then think about it. He would not have been able to get out of the linen clothes that he was wrapped in. It's too weak. He would not have been able to push back the stone that weighed several hundred pounds. He's too weak. So to just simply say he didn't really die, you're grasping at straws because you don't want to let the evidence say that there's an empty tomb because Jesus resurrected. There's uh, other thoughts as well. Number two, there's this theory that uh, everybody had a mass hallucination. Like, wow, did you guys see that? Jesus resurrected. I, I saw it too. And, and, and this mass hallucination took root in Jerusalem and spread over Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. And by the time Paul was writing, there's even converts in Caesar's household. Mass hallucination is, is a flimsy excuse for thinking about the fact two disciples on the road to Emmaus, have their eyes opened. They're not part of the masses. They have their eyes opened by themselves. Saul was not part of the masses when he was on the road to Damascus, and he said, I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. 500 people see him at one time. Multiple people, listen, multiple people, multiple locations, multiple witnesses, all bearing testimony that Jesus of Nazareth appeared to them. Hard to say that this is a result of overly active imaginations. Um, if 500 people all have the same experience, that's not imagination at work. That's a description of a real experience. Uh, I like this one. Here's a third uh, theory. I'll, I'll just call it identity theft, since that's a, a buzzword in our generation, identity theft. And this is common even today, even today, among Muslim apologists. Muslims uh, believe that Jesus was a prophet, that he was a good man, and because he was a prophet and a good man, God spared him from death, and they believe that uh, there's two, two thoughts of this. Number one, God superimposed the face of Jesus onto Judas, and then Judas died. That's one of their beliefs. Another example of mistaken identity is that, you know, everybody has a twin, right? We hear that, everybody has a twin. Okay. And, and, and maybe that's true, I don't know, but, that, but I do have a funny story about it. Uh, when I was in California, the pastor's son, I actually taught him my very first year, 28 years ago, sixth grade, and then, then, he, then I taught him later in college, and then we worked together on the same staff. And then there, there came a day when uh, he was diagnosed with cancer, and he had to go through the chemotherapy, and when he, had, when he went through chemotherapy, he lost his hair. So he was bald. I have not gone through chemotherapy. This is not willingly, but sort of willingly, okay? And so, I, so I'm bald, and he was bald at the time. And we had similar glasses at the time. We don't now, but we had similar glasses at the time. And funny things happened during that time period. Some of my students would apologize to him for the way they acted in class. They would go to him and say, you know, Dr. Lester, 
I, I, I felt like maybe that was borderline disrespectful. I, I just want to make sure there's nothing between me and you. Would you forgive me? You know what? Here's what he would say. This is funny. I don't even remember that. I've determined to forget it. Because <laughs> he didn't have the heart to say, uh, you're talking to the wrong person, but, uh, you know, hey, appreciate your honesty. And then he would preach in a youth conference session, and people would come up to me and say, Brother Chapel, Brother Chapel, that message touched my life, changed me. Such an encouragement. I don't even know what to say. And they would just, and at this point, I just feel awkward. You know, I said, uh, well, you know, let's just praise the Lord for that. It's just, you know, that's just God doing that work. I had nothing to do with it, which is true. I didn't have a single thing to do with it. On one particular occasion, we're sitting in a staff meeting. The pastor's wife, this gentleman's mom, comes in a little bit late. I'm sitting on a second row in, and so there's an empty seat. She comes right in and sits beside me, leans over, hey. Oh, Lester? <laughs> she, she thought I was her son from the back, and, and it was a mistake, and I didn't. So some people think that there was, in the first century, somebody who just looked really, really close to Jesus, and from a distance they saw him walking, and they, they just spread this whole message. Oh, he's, he's left the grave, but just think about that. There's a way to check. Open the grave, <laughs> and if his body is still there, uh, then it was mistaken identity. There's another theory that goes to this as well. Uh, the people just went to the wrong tomb. This whole mess called Christianity, it all can be traced back to people that were so ignorant that early in the morning they went to the wrong tomb and here we are today. But again, guide them to the right tomb. If they went to the wrong tomb, guide them to the right tomb, open the tomb, show them that Jesus is there, case closed. Case closed. And I love this one as well, theory number five. Uh, these people uh, stole Jesus' body. Yep, fishermen overpowered hundreds of Roman soldiers and pushed back the stone, and they stole the body of Jesus. It's just a little bit, it takes more faith to believe that than to believe that Jesus prophesied his own death, burial, and resurrection, and he did what he said. So when we think about this idea, there's historical objections to the resurrection. But let's look at historical evidences for the resurrection. That's what I want to focus on, the fact that we have evidences that point to the fact that the, the, the record is true, Jesus actually rose from the grave. So everything Paul said is a consequence. We don't have to worry about it. In fact, we can reverse it. We can say it this way. Now, since Christ has been risen from the grave, then he is alive. And since he is alive, my preaching has meaning, and your faith has meaning. And since he's alive, we are truthful witnesses. And since he's alive, the people who died before us are with Jesus. And since he's alive, we are not in our sins. And since he is alive, we are of all men the happiest people on the earth. In other words, you can reverse every single one of those things if there is a resurrection. So what evidences do we have? Number one, as we've talked about in a lesson yesterday, we have the reliability of the New Testament. We talked about yesterday, if we put the Bible on trial, we have manuscript evidence and archaeological evidence and historical evidence and scientific evidence, prophetic evidence, and then we have the testimony of the Bible itself testifying in its own behalf that this is true. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's inspired. It is the divine inspired words of God. It's reliable. And so when you think about that and everything we talked about yesterday on the the trustworthiness, the accuracy of scriptures, if the Bible is true, then the Bible says that Jesus rose from the grave. Uh, The Bible there is a reliable witness. There's a second witness, second evidence, the dates of composition, when the Bible was written. The vast majority of the New Testament was written around the middle of the first century. The New Testament doesn't mention the death of Peter or Paul by Nero, so most of the writings are written before that. 
It doesn't really even mention the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by Titus, so most of it is written before then, which means the bulk of the New Testament has a 40-year window from 30 to 70 AD, that roughly a, a 30 to 40-year window. And the New Testament, when we look at it, and the, the date in which it was written, here's what that means. There were still eyewitnesses to the crucifixion. So before you, if you want to make up this great story about something that happened, you better make sure there's nobody living who can sort of pour water on that fire. If you want to establish a credible witness to the fact that Jesus resurrected from the grave, you better pick your witnesses better. Listen closely. Who were the first people who came to the tomb and found it empty? Women. That doesn't mean much today in our world. But in the first century, that's a, that's a huge error on the part of the writer if he's creating something. You, you don't want your whole new religion to hinge upon the testimony of women because women weren't allowed to testify in the first century. In fact, Christianity gave, gave a lot of uh, worth and value and dignity to, to women because Christianity recognized that both man and female are made in the image of God. And, and there's this value there. But in the first century, that, that, that wasn't the case. And so you would not want to have the best evidence for your empty grave hinging upon the testimony of women in the first century. And yet, that's exactly what the New Testament does. It says, you know, I'm so, I'm so sure about this empty tomb. I want to tell you the women saw it first. I want to tell you right now when there's hundreds of witnesses still alive that you can go verify this with. So the early writing is actually an evidence for the empty tomb. So the reliability of the scriptures, the early writing of the scriptures is a testimony. Uh, we could add to this the importance of 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 that we've sort of looked at as a witness. Can I add something else? How about the transformed lives of the apostles? A month ago or so, I was sitting outside Caiaphas's house. This is where the judgment took place. There's a set of stairs there. You go down the stairs. You go across the Kidron Valley. You go up under the Mount of Olives, and here's the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus walked down these stairs from the upper room, a free man. He's brought back up those same stairs, bound by Caiaphas and the, and the soldiers, the Jewish soldiers. And now, uh, there at that place, he's going to be interrogated uh, and sentenced. Outside the house, there's the servants' quarters. You can still see the ruins of it. This is where Peter would have been, warming himself by the fire with the servants there. Hey, your speech. I recognize you by your speech. You're, you're from Galilee. You're one of his followers. Mm, no, no. <laughs> got me confused with somebody. No, no, I'm, I'm sure you're him. No, no, no. It's, it's, no, no, I don't, I don't know that man. No, no, I am sure of it. Bleep, bleep, bleep. Don't know the bleep, bleep. No. The Bible says he's being to swear with an oath three times in the presence of a servant girl. The man who one time swung his sword and cut off Malchus's ear is now fearful for being found out. And when the, the servant girl is putting on pressure, he just three times denies he even knows the Lord. And he goes out and weeps bitterly because he had no faith. He was fearful. He, he was a coward. That's not the same individual we see 50 days later. 50 days later, he stands up on the day of Pentecost and he preaches with all the Jews from all the nations coming down because three times a year they're required to come to Jerusalem. They're all there. And he just opens it up and he preaches to them from the Old Testament who Jesus is. And 3,000 were saved and baptized. What made the transformation in Peter's life from coward to preacher? 
What made the transition? What was the transformation with Saul, who's breathing out threatenings, wreaking havoc in the church? Acts 1, with letters in his hands to go and hunt down the Christians in Damascus. What makes the difference between Saul the persecutor to Paul the preacher? He met the resurrected Jesus. Transformed lives. We have six minimal facts that everybody agrees to. These are uh, the bare minimums. Uh, So, foe and friend alike, they, these are beyond dispute. These six facts are indisputable. They are the minimal facts that everybody agrees to. Number one, a historical Jesus was put to death by Roman crucifixion. Nobody denies that if they have any, any inkling of, of, of study. If somebody says Jesus didn't exist, that's not an atheist. That's an ignorant person. Okay. Even atheists recognize there was a historical Jesus. They don't like him, and they don't want to say that he's God, but, it, but it's really hard to look at all the evidence and say that he didn't exist. So, so, so all of us believe, friend and foe alike, there was a historical Jesus put to death by Roman crucifixion. Number two, the disciples had experiences that they thought were actually appearances of Jesus after the death, after the grave. Now, I word it that way because I'm... I'm if somebody doesn't believe in the resurrection, they still can't deny that the disciples at least thought they saw the resurrected Christ. Does that make sense? So the disciples are here, we saw the risen Christ. The enemy is saying, you, you thought you did. But we can't disagree with the fact that there was something that happened, and in their minds, they thought they saw the risen Christ. That's beyond dispute. Number three, these disciples who were in hiding were so thoroughly transformed, they became willing to die for that belief. That's beyond dispute. And it wasn't that they had this beehive mentality where they just hunkered down together. No, no. It wasn't where they hunkered together and got moral support. I'll say no if you say no. Uh, and, and I'll stand strong if you say no. It wasn't that. They scattered everywhere. To Egypt, to India, across the Byzantine or the Roman Empire, standing on their own. And they were sometimes drugged through the streets and torn apart. Sometimes they were crucified upside down. Sometimes they were beaten. Sometimes they were stoned. But they never wavered. Something transformed them. And, and, and uh, what it was, maybe, maybe there's some difference of how we interpret the fact, but we cannot dismiss the fact that they were so thoroughly transformed they were willing to die. Number four, we cannot deny the fact that this proclamation of the resurrection began when the church was in infancy. This wasn't something that grew over time and became a legend. Oh, you, know, you know, in the early church, they talked about Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if he, hey, what if he was still alive? Why don't we say that he is? We're, we're, we have, we're bishops. We can just say that with authority. Yeah. Why don't we have a church council? No. You find the preaching of the gospel right there. Church is in infancy. And Paul is laying down the fact without the resurrection, there is no church, there is no gospel. It's early. Number five. James, the brother of Jesus, was a former skeptic, but became a Christian because of an experience he believed was an appearance of the risen Jesus. We know that James was the pastor at the first church of Jerusalem. What we sometimes forget is James was not a believer in his brother's message until after the resurrection. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says he appeared to Cephas, he appeared to the twelve, he appeared to the five hundred, he appeared to James. Imagine that. You're growing up in a household and, and your older brother is running around and people are saying, your older brother's the Messiah. How's it feel, James? Your brother's the Messiah. Imagine living with that. And the Bible doesn't say Jesus on the cross saying, John, behold your mother, and these are your new brothers. They're not there. They're like, you know, he's probably getting what he deserved. I'm embarrassed. 
Now imagine you're, you're sort of comforting your mom. It's okay, you know, we knew Jesus had troubles, but, you know, this is probably for the best. And then Jesus appears to you. That rocks your world, doesn't it? And so whether or not you believe in the resurrection, you have to, the minimal fact is James, who was once a skeptic, is now the pastor. And because in his mind he saw the risen Jesus. And then the sixth minimal fact, Saul the persecutor became a Christian because he believed he had an appearance of the risen Jesus. So how do we interpret these minimal facts? What do we do with them? These are non-negotiable. These, these six truths are recognized by friend and by foe alike. What do we do with it? Well, which theory best corresponds to these six minimal facts? Would we say that, uh, you know, it's because Jesus didn't really die? It would be hard to align that. You know, it was because they all had these hallucinations. It's, it's going to be really hard to align these minimal facts with that theory. You know, there was a mistaken identity. No. They went to the wrong tomb. No. Here's the truth that best corresponds to the reality of these minimal facts. Jesus really died. He was really buried. And he really rose again. We have a risen Savior. On the next slide, I have this uh, fun little uh, newspaper from the first century. It doesn't really exist. This is not, this is not an archaeological discovery, okay? Uh, but in the first century, imagine this would be the, the newspaper headline. Jesus lives. Eyewitness reports that the tomb was found empty. And this is a picture of the garden tomb over here. Wouldn't that be a cool headline if you lived in the first century? Jesus lives. Now, what do we do with this information? Well, I hope from just a personal conviction you'll have a greater appreciation for 1 Corinthians 15, and you'll go back and you'll read through that. I hope that we'll at least think through this way, that when we read the Gospels, the early church leaders didn't, didn't immediately or initially believe in the resurrection. Peter's like, I'm not waiting for the resurrection. That's not what he's doing. Like, hey, guys, I'm going fishing. You want to go with me? This, I'm giving this up. This ministry, this job didn't work. I blew it. We all blew it. He's dead. And so now they're not looking for the resurrection. They're like, we've got to make some money to pay the bills now, and hopefully uh, nobody will recognize that we were once with him. They didn't, and the, the, the early Christian leaders did not initially believe in the resurrection. Would you turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 4? 1, verse number 4. And I'll start reading in verse 1 to give you the context. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, separated unto the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection. That's the message. He's separated to share that message, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, on the human side, on his mother's side, he's made of the seed of David, according to the flesh. But let's talk about the other side. He's declared to be the son of God. We learned about that in Sunday school this morning. That means he's equal to God. He's declared to be equal to God with power, according to the spirit of holiness. Well, what, what is the, the demonstration that he is? What declares Jesus to be equal to God? The resurrection from the dead. That is the miracle. Without the resurrection, read 1 Corinthians 15, we're of all men most miserable. Now, this morning, for the most part, we're probably people who have put our trust in Jesus. When I was 11 years old, even though I grew up in a pastor's home, before 11 years old, I would have thought I was a pretty good kid. I didn't really wrestle with the fact that there's none good, no, not one. When I was 11, God convicted me of my own personal sin. 
It wasn't grievous sin. I, you know, like sometimes if you ask people if you know for sure you'd go to heaven, they'll say things like, I sure hope so. How do you know that? I've never killed anyone. Okay, well, I don't know why that's the one that always comes up, right? But I hear that often. So at 11 years old, I, I had never been tried for murder. Uh, I had never committed adultery. I had, I had never been a drunk or an alcoholic or a drug addict. Uh, maybe the worst thing I had done was uh, lied to my parents or, or maybe hit my sisters. I don't know. It wasn't like I, from the world's perspective, I didn't have this grievous list of sins. But from God's perspective, I had sins. And those sins need to be paid for. At 11 years old, I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I asked him to forgive me of my sins because as God, he has the authority to do that. I asked him to forgive me of my sins, and he saved me. November 18th, 1983, my life was changed. I'm not the same person today that I would have been had I not made that decision. I'm not the same person today that I was before I made that decision. How was I able to make that decision? I wasn't praying to a dead God. I was praying to one who had conquered death, hell, and the grave. And to him, I cried out, and the Lord heard me, and he saved me. If you don't have a testimony of salvation, can I tell you this morning, there's a resurrected Savior who offers salvation freely. We get excited when I talk about the free classes, right? Can I tell you there's something better than a free class? It's the free gift of salvation. You can't work for it. You can't be good enough for it. You can't earn it. It's a gift. Just as our parents would sometimes give us a gift for our birthday or Christmas, we didn't have to earn it. It was just given to us and we received it. In like manner, God gives us the gift of salvation to whosoever will. So if you've not made that decision, today would be a great day to do that. If you have made that decision, but maybe your love for Christ has grown cold, or maybe you're just not as excited, you've sort of just been going through it for so long, it's sort of just sort of become maybe taken for granted. Would this weekend's challenges remind us the fact we have truth on our side, and may God fan a flame in our fires uh, to go out and tell that to others. With that in mind, let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity to be here this morning. Thank you for this church, their hospitality, their, their hunger to know truth. Not because, Lord, we feel like maybe we're in error, but we just want to have a better capacity to share that truth with others. And I pray you'd give us the, the opportunity to do that. And Lord, even now as we are coming to the conclusion of this service, would you help us to make decisions that are meaningful, that have eternal value? And Lord, for example, if we've not trusted you as Savior, help us to make that decision now. If, Lord, perhaps we have grown maybe a little bit distant in our relationship with you, may the truth of your resurrection put a fire in our soul to go and tell others about what you've done. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I'm going to have Pastor Kyle come and